Well, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Um, I have had the privilege on many occasions to come and speak on a Sunday morning, and I've always enjoyed the fellowship of this sweet church. Uh, You are my second church, my sister church, or any name that describes an intimacy of relationship, that's where you fit. And it's a joy for me to deliver to you a message that I guarantee you'll never hear from Joel Osteen. So I want to begin, (laughs) and it's on the subject of the certainty of the coming judgment, the certainty of that day of coming judgment. We were seated across from each other in a restaurant booth when the Lord provided this wonderful opportunity for me to share his glorious gospel message with this young man. This guy was pretty sharp. But he was full of questions about the faith, which I absolutely love. I think every pastor loves to be with people who just keep asking more questions and who are desirous of finding out answers. Having introduced the glorious good news of the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, I do what I normally did. I told him about the desperate need of mankind for salvation because we are sinners, and that sin has separated us from a holy God. And to make the news even worse, there's nothing that you and I can do to merit deliverance from sin through our own efforts. And if this spiritual condition is not changed by coming in faith to Christ and him alone, we are destined to face a final judgment of God and the eternal damnation that it brings. Well, he sat back, he folded his arms in front of him, and he said, that's the one thing that causes me to have some reservations about becoming a Christian. This whole idea of a coming judgment day and sending people to hell. He went on to say that this this teaching of the Christian faith seems to make God unloving, unforgiving, harsh, vindictive. He said, but in my mind, I believe God is a loving God, and he would never inflict harsh judgment on anybody, even those who disregard his standards. I responded to him by saying, that we know from the self-disclosure of God in the word of God that indeed he is a loving God, that he does intentionally pursue what is best for those whom he has created, and that he's demonstrated the proof of that love by making sacrifice on our behalf, of course, the greatest of all sacrifice being Christ himself. But I said, you know, the scripture also reveals that our God is a holy God. He is the personification of moral excellence and ethical purity. He is set apart from all that is sinful and ordinary. And because he is holy and righteous, he doesn't tempt people to do evil, and there's no sin in him. But our God is just, and his judgments are always perfect and equitable and fair and without partiality. Matter of fact, it's in the DNA of God to be gracious and merciful and to provide a way to escape 
that final judgment to come by making the provision of his only son, Jesus Christ, who in our stead bore the wrath that we deserve and the penalty that is justly due to us. As a matter of fact, I have a new perspective of Christmas. It's relatively new in my mind. I'd been teaching on the theology of Christmas at church, and I now see Christmas as a rescue mission. God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us with the intention, with the purpose of going to the cross in our stead and in our behalf. And so God, in love and graciously provided a Savior who is the Christ the Lord, and he came to rescue us from this final judgment. And folks, we wouldn't need a Savior if we could save ourselves, right? And we wouldn't need a Savior if there was no judgment to come. But as a result of our Lord's saving sacrificial death, God does not treat the believing sinner as his sins deserve. And he extends his saving grace to those who have entrusted the salvation of their soul to the saving work of Christ. The joyous, great news for everybody who's a believer is found in Romans 8.1, isn't it? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verses like that put me on the verge of becoming charismatic. <laughs> but you don't want to see a white man dance out of presence. But I come so close. Because I I consider the wonder of that truth. I deserve condemnation. I deserve eternal damnation. But God is merciful and gracious. And he delivers me from it. And listen to these words from Jesus recorded by John in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. So I asked him, would you declare certain parents to be loving if they were morally indifferent to the disobedience and the misbehavior of their children? He said, I wouldn't. I thought that was kind of interesting. I said, how come? He said, because that's not the best way to teach your children how to live life. I concurred. Matter of fact, I told him, you know, consequences for disobedient behavior can be the best teacher for developing a person's character and their maturity and their progression toward being responsible people. After all, the job of a parent is to help their children to become responsible people. So I inquired of him, would you want to worship a God who is morally indifferent to the behavior of his children. And he said, I guess not. God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's justice make it impossible for God to be morally indifferent to the sins of those whom he has created. Judgment is a necessary expression of the perfection of God's character. 
And the fact that his judgment will be righteous and fair and true also reflects who he is. And the certainty of him exercising judgment is succinctly captured by King David. I've got that passage up there in the left-hand column of the notes from Psalm 7, 9, verses 7 and 8. Listen to this. But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for what, folks? For judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the people with equity. Notice the words will. That's talking about something in the future. And it's something certain about the future. That the throne of God was established as the place from which he would exercise judgment and he will judge. So a final judgment day becomes very certain to us because of the perfections of the holy character of God, because of the historical evidence of God exercising judgment and the testimony of his holy word regarding the events of the final day of judgment. And so what I hope to do this evening will be to assure you with the greatest amount of confidence of the certainty of a final day of judgment as you and I examine three time aspects of the judgment of God. We're going to begin first with the past record of God's judgment on your outline, the past record of God's judgment. And again, we're going to look at not all of these because time won't Uh, provide that for us to take place tonight. But we're going to take a look at perhaps the first, maybe the second. And then we're going to look at the present record of God's judgment. There is a judgment going on today. And then the future record of God's judgment. So take your Bible and go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. I can guarantee you one thing, that in a prophecy conference, very few Pastors will start you off in Genesis chapter 3, but I am today because I need to show you that past example of the judgment of Satan and the judgment of Adam and Eve, which is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. In the first seven verses, we see the serpent of old successfully enticing our first parents to disobey God. Now, the way he did it, he still does it today is by calling to question the clarity of God's command. So he's not only calling to question the word of God, he's calling to question the clarity, or the fancy term is the perspicuity of God's statement. He's calling to question as to whether or not God was clear, and he's also calling to question the fairness of God. He, look at what he says there in 3.1. In Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The very first question asked on planet earth was a question calling to question the clarity of God's statement. Did God Say, goes on today. The enemy uses that a whole lot. Did Jesus say that he is the son of God? 
Did God say there's only one way to be saved? And so forth and so on. It goes on today. And that's what he did in his his attempt to entice our first parents to step away from God. The second step in his strategy was to assure them that there would be no consequence for their disobedience. Let me read that further. In verse 2, the woman tries to bring clarity to him. She says, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Now, he didn't say anything about the touching it, but it, it's, it's fair to include that. And the serpent said to the woman, and here it is, You surely will not die. So his second step was to make them, or make Eve first, convinced that she could step away from God's mandates and not experience any consequence. Now, he does this because he doesn't want you to focus in on the consequence of disobedience because what makes sin so attractive at first is that we see it without the consequence. And so he said, look at, no, you go ahead. I've got a, there's a great benefit I'm going to tell you about, but, but just listen to me. You don't have to do this. You don't have to obey him. And if you don't obey him, there's no problem. There's no consequence. You will not die. This is what he said to her. It's a big lie. Then the next step in the process of deception was to tell them a major lie. And that is that their eyes would be open and they would possess an omniscient understanding of good and evil, just like God. But in the end, however, they possessed an experiential knowledge of good and evil when they stepped beyond the will of God. This three-point strategy worked in conjunction with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Look at verse 6. You'll see it there. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. I get the impression that Adam was there the whole time. He doesn't disrupt the conversation. He stood there while it went on. And then when the time came, he intentionally, he intentionally stepped away from the will of God. And what did this result? What happened to these three primary actors in this sinful scenario? God immediately brings judgment. He brings judgment. Matter of fact, he cursed the serpent. Look at Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat at the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and she shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, a death blow would be administered by the seed of the woman to Satan. This verse is oftentimes referred to as the proto-evangelium. What does that mean? 
It means the first announcement of the gospel. Right here. Even in the judgment that he's going to exercise, there's a bit of good news. There's a termination of the devil coming. And so he's already been judged. Later on in John chapter 16 and verse 11, when Jesus was describing the fact that the Spirit of God, when he came, he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And he says in 1611, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So judgment is certain, especially for those who follow the God of this world and give their loyalty and love and devotion to him. They will get the same fate as he has already been guaranteed. Listen, he's already been sentenced. He's just waiting for that sentence to be carried out. He's judged already. Well, so we have the judgment of Satan, but we also have the judgment of Adam and Eve. Take a look at verse 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, I have a friend of mine who says that's his life verse, this verse here. I don't think that's a good one. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, and it shall grow uh, for you, and you will eat the plants of the field but by the sweat of your face, and you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And if you look over at verse 22, the same chapter, then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he had taken. So he drove the man out of the east of the Garden of Eden, and he stationed the cherubim with flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Why didn't he want him to stay? Because he did not want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life and live in that condition forever permanently separated from God. Now, why am I telling you this? He said, I thought this was about a prophecy. Well, I'm trying to make you understand that we can count on God's future judgment because we can see in the Bible the past exercise of his judgment. And right at the beginning, right in the very beginning, we see God exercising judgment. And it continues Not only do you see God in the judgment of Satan and Adam and Eve, but it continues on. If you look at the next one, which is on B in your outline, and that is the judgment of the universal flood. I'm not going to read that all, but Genesis chapter 7, 17 through 24. The Bible tells us that during the days of Noah, the sinful rebellion uh, mankind extended so bad 
that God's assessment of what was going on in the earth was this. Listen to this, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so what did God do about that? So God's judgment was a universal flood. And everybody on planet earth, with the exception of Noah and his family, and the male and female animals and birds and the things that crawl on the earth were the only ones spared. Can you imagine that? The entire world was flooded to the point that the only ones alive were the people on that ark. And that ark served as a means of salvation for these people from the judgment of God. And then see on your outline the, the judgment of Egypt and their gods. In Exodus chapter 7 through 12, uh, 10 plagues were sent upon them. And, and you could read about that. And it, it's, it's another exercise of the righteous judgment of God in the past. Now, why are we looking at this? Because it proves what happens in the future when God promises judgment. And then the, the judgment of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the practice of gross immorality. In Genesis chapter 19. People in our day need to learn the lesson from Genesis chapter 19. Matter of fact, one of the temptations that goes around in this world is this. Has God said that homosexuality is sin? Yeah, he has. And he also gave us an example of judgment. But he also gives us an example of mercy and grace. (laughs) I love that about him. He does tell us about his judgment. But he gives us plenty of examples of mercy and grace. And I love that. And then there, E in your outline there, there's an assortment of other examples of God's judgment exercised in the Old Testament. So many that I can't go over them all. But for example, uh, the first generation of Israelites, when they were at the door of the promised land, and they would not believe God and trust God that he would deliver them from the enemies that they had. And because of their lack of faith, all of them were judged by God. All of them died in the wilderness. And their children would go in to the promised land, and they would not. And then later on, when both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were in the depths of depravity and sin, disobedience to God, idolatry and immorality, God promised them that he would take them out of the land. And he brought judgment upon them by the Assyrians. And then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So uh, when I finished not too long ago reading the minor prophets, it is loaded, loaded with the promise of God exercising judgment and God actually exercising judgment. So that's the first point. We have in the Bible the certainty of the exercise of past judgment. But what about present judgment? That's the second point. There are some theologians from a more liberal persuasion that have said that God has changed since Old Testament times. I've even heard evangelicals say, well, there's a God that's a certain way in the Old Testament, harsh and unloving, and he's kind of loving and gracious in the New Testament. Wow, that's a violation of a tremendous theological truth called the immutability of God. God is perfect. He's always been perfect. How do you make perfect better? 
or if you make it less, then it's not perfect, right? God is perfect. His character is eternally the same. And yet there are some who seem to present God as changing from who he was in the Old Testament into our present day. One guy said he's not a mean-spirited sort of God like he was in Old Testament times. He has a new attitude, much more positive perspective about people. Well, then he's got a better attitude than I do. I heard one liberal rabbi on PBS. I don't know why I watch that. It drives me nuts. My wife says, why do you do that? I've broken several TVs. It's not a good thing. But I heard this liberal rabbi on PBS say that after the judgment of the flood, God learned to control his temper. He's experienced a reformation of sorts. Perhaps he has gone through some anger management therapy. The rabbi went on to say that the rainbow following the flood is a heavenly sign that God will not judge anybody anymore. It's interesting because he said, no, I won't judge anybody anymore with water. Next time, fire. She said, now the world will be exposed fully to the love of God. God has left his judgment to an omniscient Santa Claus who sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. So be good. There you go. No. However, the Apostle Paul addressed the present perspective of the judgment of God in the book of Romans. I don't want you to look in Romans chapter 1, the present perspective of God's judgment. It's called the wrath of abandonment. When individuals and nations and societies abandon God in the exercise of his judgment of their sin... He gives them over. He gives them over to gag themselves on their sin and to suffer the backwash of such behavior, what it brings to their life and the tragedies and the tragedies that occur to themselves and others around them. Essentially, he pulls back his restraining grace and he allows these committed unbelievers to indulge themselves in their sinful appetites and to suffer the consequence of living such a sinful life. Sinful man in this condition believes that this is freedom. When in fact it's deeper bondage into sin and the eternal damnation that it brings. This present expression of God's judgment is captured in this little phrase, God gave them over. That's a a statement of judgment. God gave them over. You see it in verse beginning in verse 18. Verse 17, by the way, of chapter 1, he talks about the revelation of God's righteousness, which is found in the gospel message. 
But then in verse 18, he talks about the revelation of God's wrath. That wrath, that determined anger of God expressed towards sinful humanity. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to notice that the wrath of God is never directed toward an innocent person. Never, right? What does it say? Ungodly people, irreverent people, people who are disrespectful of God. And unrighteous people, people as a lifestyle, live independent of the righteous standards of God. These are the ones whom the judgment of the God's present wrath is bestowed upon. In verse 19, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. There's the revelation of God in nature. Creation is the calling card of God of his existence. But they suppress the truth of God's existence because they don't want the accountability that comes with that reality. So they suppress the truth. They say, you're the result of some cosmic accident over a period of time. You were not created because if I... If I say that you were created, I have to acknowledge that there's a creator. I have to tell other people that I believe in a creator and I won't believe in a creator. And so they look at you as some sort of cosmic accident. What's the old saying? From goo to you by way of the zoo. That's their formula for the way they look at people and the way they look at creation because they want to live in their sin. Well, let's look on a little further down deep into that passage because I want us to look at verse 24 of chapter 1, 24. He says, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of, to their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural, that's lesbianism. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. That's homosexuality. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, and he names them. This is all the expression of God's present judgment called the wrath of abandonment. Is there any hope for anybody in that situation? Is there any hope? Well, I have to tell you, as one who had one time lived my life exactly like this, who at one time, the only thing I was creative at was sin and disobedience and the ways that I could get around that. And yet God intervened into that terrible condition of spiritual death miraculously and transformed me. He overcame the deadness of my soul 
and granted to me the repentance and faith necessary to believe. So yes, even from this, there is deliverance. But we're going to see that some people take this attitude all the way to the final day, to the final judgment. There's one other present judgment. I don't have a great deal of time to talk about it, but it is the judgment of the discipline of the saints. The Bible is very clear that from time to time, God has to take his own children to the divine woodshed, and he needs to alter their attitudes and their behaviors. The writer of Hebrews covered that in detail. I'm going to exhort you, like our previous pastor said, to take a look at this for your homework assignment, because it's very important because it involves you. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, where there is a description of the judgment that is bestowed upon the believer when the believer insists on living independent of God's will. God loves you too much to let you stay there, and he will bring you back. (laughs) You will not necessarily like the way he does it. Uh, I, I found out it's better to expose your own sin on your time rather than for him to expose it on his time, and he will. And so there is that judgment as well. Now, why did I do this? I wanted to tell you something about the past judgment of God, And I wanted to tell you something about the present judgment of God to assure you that there's an absolutely day of judgment that will become a reality that will take place in God's timing. And so now let's look at the final, the future record of God's judgment, coming judgment. So first of all, there's the judgment of God unleashed during the great tribulation. In Matthew 24, 15 through 22, Jesus said of this great day, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no one would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days were cut short. This coming of the great tribulation is expressed in, uh, in the final aspect of God's judgment upon this sin-cursed world with three intense forms of judgment described in the Bible as the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. The intense expression of God's wrath will unfold in a sequential series of telescoping judgments. And they're going to grow with intensity as they are expressed. One of, the seventh, one of the seventh trumpet judgments uh, comes the seven bowl judgments, and then from the, wait, from the seal judgments come the trumpet judgments, and then from the trumpet judgments come the bowl judgments, which are expressed as the final wrath of God expressed on planet Earth. And each one of these grows and becomes harsher and more difficult. And during this time, the world will experience the worst kind of ecological environmental disaster ever, And it will not be at the hands of a careless chemical company who dumps toxic waste in fresh waters. Nor will it be the product of a terrible oil spill. Nor will it be the excessive use of SUVs. Nor will it be climate change. It's the judgment of God. God did not need any help when he exercised the universal judgment of the flood, did he? 
in the future, he will not need anyone's help as he exercises that final judgment. Mother Nature, as the world loves to describe her, will not be ravaged by any creature. However, the ecology of this planet will suffer greatly at the hands of the one who created it. The world and its ecology and even the planetary systems will suffer greatly during the time of the Great Tribulation. But the earth will not be destroyed entirely, as bad as that is. As a result of these telescoping judgments of God, billions of people will die. Billions. And if God did not end the Great Tribulation when he did, the world and all of humanity would have perished. The second coming of Christ will not only put an end to the final world government headed by the Antichrist, but it will put an end to the Great Tribulation, a time like no other time. And the world will undergo what Jesus described as a regeneration for a thousand years. Listen to his own words when he was talking to his disciples. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, that you have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you will also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't that something? He says, in the regeneration. That means the second birth, the second experience of the earth as it's regenerated during the time of the millennium. That's why you have the lion laying down with the lamb and putting your hands in the viper's hole and nothing happens to you. and It's because the earth will be changed during that time. So the earth will have been reshaped by the devastating judgments of the tribulation and it will be restored during the millennial kingdom. But eventually, it will be totally destroyed. Well, then there's the judgment of the nations In Matthew B., in your outline there under the future judgments, the judgment of the nations mentions in Matthew 25 through 31, it's commonly known as the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Uh, Those who showed faith in God by treating Israel favorable and the people of God favorably by providing comfort and care during the tribulation, they are the sheep and they will enter the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And those nations and individuals who followed the Antichrist and persecuted Israel and the people of God are the goats who will be consigned to hell as a place of torment, a place of awaiting their final judgment, which is the lake of fire. And so there is that judgment. And then there's this one, the judgment of the saints. This one is probably one that you're probably pretty interested in, the judgment of the saints. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now let me remind you that those who know the Lord in a saving way will not experience judgment for their sins. You say, how do you know that? Well, then there'd be a big contradiction. I quoted for you Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, this judgment does not have to do with that. 
This judgment has to do with your service and not your sins. It has to do with the quality of your service. It has to do with the motive of your serving. Did you serve God driven by your desire to see the lost saved, the church edified, and God glorified? Was that your motive in your service? Did you use your spiritual gifts to that end? Or did you serve the Lord in a way in which your motives were incorrect? They were to exalt yourself and not the glory of God. So that's what that judgment is all about. It's, it's, a, it's not going to hell or going, it's going to heaven. All that was settled when you became a believer. You're on your way. If you're a believer, you're on your way to the eternal state. It's very, very good news. But there is this time of judgment, probably sometime after the rapture, when the saints will be judged. I like the way the Believer's Bible commentary spoke of it. It said, this judgment has to do with the quality of a believer's service and not his sins. It's a time of review and reward. It's not to be confused with the judgment of the Gentile nations in Matthew 25 or the judgment of the great white throne, which we're going to get to. This latter is the final judgment. This great white throne is the judgment of the wicked. But there is a judgment of the believers. And now, in the remaining moments I have, there is the great white throne judgment. I want you to look now with me in Revelation chapter 20. Now again, follow my pathway to get there. I wanted to remind you that God already has a track record of exercising his judgment. So if someone says to you, I believe in a loving God that doesn't judge anyone, you can show him a track record he already has. He has a present exercise of his judgment, the wrath of abandonment. And he even brings judgment upon his saints when they need to be disciplined and corrected. And now the future judgment, the ultimate future judgment, and that is the great white throne. This final judgment of God, which will be exercised at the end of the millennium, before the creation of the new heaven and earth, this judgment triggers the end of human history. All unbelievers, all unsaved people that have ever lived on planet earth will be judged for their sins because they will stand before our holy God without a redeemer. Without personally appropriating the sufficient sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of their soul. Our Lord Jesus referred to this event, listen to his words, as the resurrection of judgment. Listen from John chapter 5, 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's an amazing thought. The unsaved will be resurrected. They'll be given these bodies that enable them to stand in front of God for this period of judgment. Now, we can divide this judgment into three different scenes. The first scene is the judge. Take a look at verse 11. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. In verse 11, that 
seat of judgment is described as a white throne, which is capturing its purity. It's described as a throne which captures its power. This is the ultimate source authority. This is the one from which all judgment will be exercised. And the one who's seated upon the throne, now this is going to maybe shock you, but the one who's seated upon the throne is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one that they denied, the one that they rejected, is the one that they now stand in front of in resurrection bodies. So you say, how do you know that it's Jesus? Well, listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. He has given all judgment to the Son. In John 5, 27 And he gave him authority to exercise judgment because he is the son of man. Since it's impossible really to divide the Trinity, it's probably better to say that occupying the judgment seat is God in the person of his glorified son. That's why it's described, this judgment, this throne, as the throne of God and the Lamb. Revelation chapter 21 and 1. Now listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. In Acts 17, 30 through 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God has now declared to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day, now watch this, when he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is Christ who is the judge on the great white throne judgment. And it's stated in verse 11, the second part, that earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. This indicates that this judgment takes place in eternity after the destruction of this present creation that Peter writes about in 2 Peter 3.10. I like the way Dr. Barnhouse described this. He made this comment, and I quote him, there is to be an end of the material heavens and earth which we know. It's not that they are to be purified or rehabilitated, but that the reverse of creation is to take place. They are to be uncreated. As they came from nothing at the word of God, they will be sucked back into nothingness by the same word of God. And this moment, the unfolding of history, the creator of all things, will become the destroyer of all he's created. Peter wrote this in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its work will be burned up. This is one of the reasons why I now believe in global warming because of this passage. I like what Dr. MacArthur said. He said, if you think we're messing up this world, wait till Jesus gets a hold of it. Scene two, the judged. Take a look at the 12th verse. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. What we have here is all unbelievers, the great ones, the great ones of history, and the small ones that never made the pages of history. All of these unbelievers now standing before the judgment throne of God. 
And the fact that they're standing is evidence of that resurrection. Remember, I said Jesus described this as the resurrection of judgment. Daniel said, and I like this, he said, uh, this is the resurrection of disgrace and everlasting contempt. The Apostle Paul spoke of this as the resurrection of the wicked. So all these unsaved people throughout history are summoned from their graves, wherever they were, wherever they are buried, they're summoned to stand before the Lord. And this is a divine summon. It's not one you can accept or reject. Verse 13 tells you that. Look at verse 13. It says, The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Death and Hades will no longer be needed. So they give up there, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. That word deeds uh, comes from a, a Greek word that means or can be translated works. We'll get to that in a minute. It's always been very interesting to me that you are always judged, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, by your works. But you're only saved by grace alone. It's not your works that save you. You understand that? But in that judgment seat, the bema seat of the believer, it's your deeds that is measured, how you serve the Lord. In this judgment, it's their, their works, their deeds. I'll get to that in a minute. But let's describe some of the people who are probably there. Those standing before the Lord, the white throne judgment would would include all unbelievers, committed unbelievers, those individuals who have cursed God, those individuals who disrespect him profoundly, those individuals who live their lives independent of his will perpetually, those individuals who have no care, no concern, they're totally indifferent to God and the things of God, they are now standing before him awaiting their sentence, which is eternal. In addition, you have people there who have chosen some other formula of salvation. Some other formula other than the one that God has declared in his scripture, which is salvation through faith in Christ and him alone. But they chose some other pathway. And now they're there. And standing before this throne will be those who had a ministry in the name of Jesus who cast out demons and taught in his name and worked miracles, and yet they lacked a saving relationship with Christ. You say, how do I know that? From Jesus. Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. And the evidence that they had no relationship with him is that they practice lawlessness. They never knew Christ. And standing before the throne of God... At this time are the millions of religious people who have never been regenerated, never been born again. And Jesus said, that's a requirement for entrance into the kingdom. You must be born again. And standing before the throne that day with those individuals who professed faith in Christ, but a faith that always lacked the practice of obedience to Christ. It's a profession of faith without the practice of the faith. James talked about that in James chapter 2. They had what he described a dead faith. A dead faith is not a saving faith. A dead faith is a profession without practice. A demonic faith is a creed without the conduct. You confess the right things, but you don't live the right way. He called that demonic faith. And standing before the Lord on Judgment Day are those who have rejected Jesus in the face of full and complete revelation of who he was 
and what he accomplished. That seems to be the worst condition to be in on the day of judgment. It's, it's at the point of having received light, an abundance of light about who Christ is and what he did, and yet to reject that from him. Well, my time is almost spent, so I've got to carry on here to this books that were open. The books record the deeds of their life. And the reason for that, I've got a lot of verses that I could have explained this to you, but the reason for that is that there was apparently um, various uh, uh, levels of, of judgment that people will experience because the books record their deeds so that God might righteously uh, give them the particular judgment they deserve. The purpose of this judgment of the books is, number one, to show them that God is righteous in the exercise of his judgment. And then, second of all, that there are degrees of punishment. We get that from the words of Jesus. Uh, I'll tell you the passages to look at. Matthew eleven twenty through 24, and Matthew ten fourteen through 15, where God, Christ, talks about that it's going to be more tolerable for the people who have not heard received life than those individuals who have received light and rejected. Well, then look at the judgment. Verses 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, on the outline is some interesting things about the lake of fire. By the way, I've never seen any innocent person ever cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21, verse 8, describes more people who are going to be in the lake of fire. And never is there an innocent person. They're always habitual sinners who practice sin as a lifestyle. So what can we do in the minute that I have? Well, first of all, be prepared. Be prepared for that day of judgment. You say, how do I get prepared? The best way to be prepared is to acknowledge that you are a sinner who needs to be saved. And to repent of your sins and put your trust only in the death and resurrection of Christ. It's necessary to be prepared. Whenever I do a funeral, I frequently quote this little poem that's on a headstone. It says, uh, pause my friend as you go by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you will be. Prepare my friend to follow me. And someone took a piece of chalk and wrote, to follow you, I can't consent until I find which way you went. (laughs) But you need to be prepared. And you need to be grateful. Oh, my fellow believers, you understand you will not be there for the great white throne judgment. Do you understand that? I mean, do you really understand that? When you come here on Sunday, you should be pushing the ushers aside saying, get out of my way, I'm here to worship. For there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I've been set free. And then be consecrated. Follow the mandates of Romans 12, 1 and 2. In reaction to the mercies you receive, present yourself as a living sacrifice. Separate yourself from this world and have your mind continuously transformed by the word of God. So there you go. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that I've had to share with these dear people the wonderful truth of the certainty of a day of judgment and how we can be prepared for the final exam. 
And I would pray today that these words would find their way into the hearts of people and that it will be transformative, that it will make a difference in them, that it will change the direction of their life. And I would pray, Lord, that we would honor you as we consider the mercies of God we've received, that we would live for you entirely because of the goodness that has come from you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.